Good morning. We've got, uh, ooh, we got a loud group of people today. Uh, numbers are down a little bit. I reckon that's spring break. Y'all come on in that, that are in the back. A um, number of you have asked me how trial is going. Thank you for your prayers. We are continuing uh, uh, to fight the fight. And it's, um, it's really, uh, I would love to be able to take all of you up there. In fact, I'd love for all of you to be on my jury. Uh, <laughs> um, or at least half of you. And, uh, um, but uh, we are in Atlantic City, New Jersey. And Atlantic City, New Jersey looks like someone took 10 or 12 big hotel casinos and dropped them in the middle of the Third Ward. I mean, it's, it's, um, the, the, it, I haven't found any middle class indications there. It's all um, very much uh, uh, inner city, uh, almost uh, ghetto-esque. Uh, with these huge, shiny uh, um, uh, casino hotels. We are staying in one. With the, there's no choice. Um, we're, so, uh, you know, we're staying in this casino hotel, and I walk out in the morning to go to court, and all of these people are sitting there at the little machines just going at it. And uh, um, <clears throat> you walk back at the end of the day, and they're all sitting there. But not everybody's sitting there going at it because... The defendants in our case have hired, we've counted at least seven so far, private investigators who follow us everywhere. And so when I walk out in the morning, there's, there are two now that I've identified pretty, pretty easily because they're, you know, they're the ones that, they're the only ones sitting there that aren't smoking going like this. And uh, <laughs> kind of a dead giveaway. And uh, uh, you know, they're there each morning kind of when I get down off the elevator. And we'll walk out, and you kind of keep walking, and then all of a sudden, you'll go. <laughs> and you'll see someone going. Um, <clears throat> and uh, it's, it's, it's just fascinating to, to be in the middle of this. We've got... Uh, um, it's, it's a fascinating deal. Not that it has anything to do with class this morning, Except to say, um, I kind of hammered out this lesson on the plane flight home Friday. So if there are major typos and problems like that, then uh, uh, one day I'll go back and rework these lessons when I have a little more time. Um, this morning, <clears throat> we're going to talk about Montanism. Uh, it's a bizarre word. It's not a real word. It's made up. It's made up uh, uh, after a fella that we'll talk about. But uh, I've, I've subtitled the lesson, An Early Charismatic Movement Goes Awry. When I was in college, <clears throat> I was, um, uh, first went to Texas Tech, but then I went to a, a, a Bible school slash seminary school for, uh, in, in Nashville, Tennessee called David Lipscomb. And it was a wonderful experience for me. Uh, I took a degree in biblical languages. Uh-oh, my Blackberry's going off, excuse me. <clears throat> Huh, how about this? Son of a gun. Oh well, um, the, uh, sorry, it's uh, totally irrelevant to class. Let me put it on quiet, but it's very interesting. And uh, <clears throat> if anybody needs cheap prescriptions, um, I just got an email of how to get them. And uh, <laughs> 
the, uh, maybe you get, either that or it's from Mark Kraber. I haven't checked which. Uh, <laughs> that's where I get most of my emails. Uh, Mark Kraber and cheap prescriptions. And um, anyway, when I was in school, I, I took a degree in, in the, out of the Bible department. It was a, a, a preaching slash biblical languages uh, degree. And um, one of the requirements at this school, this was a, a fairly, uh, the, the school that I went to comes in the Church of Christ tradition, and, and it's a tradition that um, uh, uh, is, has all different ranges within it. And, and there are ranges, uh, for example, the Pepperdine University out in Malibu, California is a Church of Christ school, and it's one that's very progressive in a lot of its thinking and very open. Um, uh, Abilene Christian University is one here in Texas that's, that's uh, uh, fairly progressive, not as progressive as perhaps Pepperdine. The school I went to, David Lipscomb, at the time was not very progressive. Uh, it was fairly narrow in its focus. And one of the requirements uh, for me, if I was going to get a preaching slash uh, Bible degree there, was that I had to go to a church that seemed acceptable. Uh, uh, to the, the schools. And it wasn't a written requirement, it was an unspoken requirement. Um, there was a church that I really enjoyed going to called Belmont Christian Assemblies. Belmont had originally been a Church of Christ, but it changed its name so that it uh, wouldn't ultimately get disfellowshipped by the Churches of Christ. So it just had a sign out front that said Christian Assemblies at 9 o'clock, 11 o'clock, da 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 da. And uh, it was a wonderful church. Michael W. Smith was one of our worship leaders. Um, uh, uh, Amy Grant went to church there. Uh, uh, it was a real hotbed of Christian music. And so um, <clears throat> I was at church there. The problem is, is that was not an acceptable church. It was a charismatic church, lightly charismatic, but, but not an acceptable church for that uh, reason. Uh, and also because uh, Lipscomb did not uh, support the idea of instrumental music in worship. So what I would have to do on Sunday mornings is I'd have to go to an acceptable church, and as soon as church let out, me and a couple of friends would hightail it over to the um, unacceptable church. So <clears throat> if I was then asked on Monday morning by the head of the Bible department, where did you worship yesterday, I was able to say, uh, I went to this acceptable church and worshiped, and everything was fine. And, um, uh, you know, and, and the... There are lots of fun stories there. But that was my, my first real encounter with the charismatic movement. And there were so many wonderful good things that I encountered there. And, and what, as I look at this class this morning, I come at it from a perspective with great appreciation for a lot of what's happened in a charismatic renewal, and yet recognizing that I, I do not choose to rear my children or go to a church that, that is... is in the, the forefront of that charismatic uh, uh, movement, at least as it exists now. Um, but I, the charismatic movement has much to offer. And so let's go through and let's look at what really is the first, perhaps, wave of the charismatic movement within Christian history uh, this morning. <clears throat> we'll start, where have we been? Whoops, I did, that's not supposed to be down there yet. Pretend it doesn't exist, okay? Um, we started out from 0 to 100 A.D., the first century. We looked at the world's culture that the church was planted into. After that, uh, uh, we looked at the biblical times themselves because this was the time of the Bible. The Bible was written 
during this first 100 years, uh, I say the Bible, the New Testament scriptures that would later be put together as the Bible. We looked at First Clement written toward the end of the 100s, around 95 AD. He was a bishop at Rome who wrote that letter to the Corinthian church. Then we looked at the Didache, which was an early writing of how to mentor early Christians, if you recall that. From there, we kind of phased without uh, much fanfare into the second century, 100 to 200. And we looked at Ignatius, who was an early writer. He wrote those seven letters on his way to be martyred. We looked at the other martyrs, in particularly Polycarp, uh, we spent some good time on. And uh, he was martyred in the middle of the century. We spent two weeks looking at the Gnostic heresy. Then today, we're going to look at... Um, uh, that's not a monastic heresy. That's a typo. Montanism, the Montanistic heresy. Monasticism was not a heresy, and it doesn't come for a few more hundred years. So excuse uh, uh, the bleary-eyed typos of a man in trial. Um, if uh, we look at where we're going from here for a moment, we're going to be asking next week and the week following, what is Scripture? How was the New Testament put together? How did we come to have these books in the New Testament and not those books? And who made the decision about these books? Now, we won't get... Uh, I haven't figured out how to do it yet because time-wise, I should probably wait and teach that in about, I don't know, another hundred years or so. But I'm going to go ahead and fuse it in and kind of wedge it in out of time because it's an easy class for me to write while I'm in trial. So we're going to do that next week and, and uh, the week following and also look at the different interpretations of Scripture because it's real fascinating. In the early church, different areas of the, the world interpreted Scripture differently. We'll look closely at in Alexandria, Egypt, which was one of the four cultural centers of the Roman Empire. Um, Alexandria, Egypt came up with its, uh, a, a very unusual interpretation of the Old Testament that uh, uh, you'll find fascinating and also informative and will help us understand some of why we interpret the Old Testament the way we do and as opposed to how we could interpret it. You know, what about these passages that seem to talk about Israel and these passages that seem harsh and judgmental? And, and remember, if we go back in our brains to last two weeks, how the Gnostic movement was saying there was a different God of the Old Testament than God of the New Testament... Part of this was how the church addressed that intellectually and said, no, 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 look at why the Old Testament scriptures write differently about God than the New Testament. And, and so it's a very fascinating look that we'll try and cover also over the next couple of weeks. And then we've still got to do in the two, 100 to 200, the early apologists. Now, in, in our communication today, when we speak of an apology, we usually speak of uh, what someone owes us. Um, uh, or maybe what we owe someone else, hopefully what we owe someone else. But in, in, in Latin, apologia, your son's not here, apologia is the Latin word that we get apology from. It actually means a defense. And so there are early defenses of the faith by Justin Martyr and others, and we will look at those and see how in that second 100 years, from 100 to 200, see how the, the thought-leading Christians were defending the faith not only among the pagans, but also against the Roman government, which I guess would be included with pagans, against Jews, and against other uh, religious groups as well. So that'll be something that we try to look at uh, uh, also. Today, 
we're going to concentrate on this charismatic movement, Montanism, and to put it into context for us, what I'd like to do is go back to the scriptures itself and look at uh, um, the charismatic teaching within scriptures. Now, I'll use the word charismatic. I should have put this in the lesson and didn't think to, but it comes from the Greek word charismata. There's a Greek word charis, C-H-A-R-I-S, charis. If you do the C-H as a ch, like we would pronounce it, C-H-A-R-I, instead of S, what word do you come up with? C-H-A, charity. It comes almost straight from the Greek word. You remember in your old King James, faith, hope, and charity abide, because that word's translated for love sometimes, okay? Um, charis means literally a gift, all right? Charismata are people who um, believe in gifts of the Holy Spirit. The charismata are the gifts of the Spirit. So when we speak of a charismata or a charismatic movement or a charismatic person, we're typically within religious grounds speaking of someone who believes in gifts of the Holy Spirit in a supernatural way. Okay? So with that as background, let's look at what the New Testament has to say first about the Holy Spirit, then we'll move into uh, the Montanism movement, and I think it will make more sense to us in that way. In John 14 through 16, before Jesus, this is Jesus' final speech, if you will, to his apostles before he goes to be crucified. And what Jesus does is he sits his apostles down, and this is the speech where he says, don't let your hearts be troubled in my father's room, or mansion or many rooms. If it weren't so, I would tell you. I go to prepare a place for you that where I am there, you may be also. And he gives them these words of encouragement. In the process of giving them these words of encouragement, he says, there's going to be the Holy Spirit that's going to come. Okay? Now, how does he say it? He says, coming is going to be one who will indwell you as a counselor. Technically, that's not the way he says it. He says it this way. The, Holy, the one who is coming is with you, but he will be in you. Okay, catch the difference here. The Holy Spirit is with you, but, but future tense, the Holy Spirit will be in you. The Holy Spirit was with the apostles because the Holy Spirit and Jesus are one and the same, at least in substance. And Jesus himself was full of the Holy Spirit, okay? So just the fact that they're in the presence of Jesus means they're in the presence of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit was with them, but they did not have the Holy Spirit indwelling them. Biblically, we understand God poured His Holy Spirit out selectively upon selective people in a selective amount at selective times. That's why King David would be anointed and the Holy Spirit would come upon King David. But as King David sins and prays in Psalm 51 for repentance after his adultery and murder, he says to God, don't let your Holy Spirit be taken from me. And we'll read about God's anointing going on Saul, but then coming from Saul. And, 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 and the, the significance of the prophet Joel prophesying that there's going to come a day when God will pour out His Spirit on all of His people 
is, the, the significance of that is, at the time Joel prophesies it in the Old Testament, God's Spirit's not poured out on all of His people. Does that make sense? So Jesus is saying, and we know historically it was the day of Pentecost, that there's going to be a day soon. I, Jesus, am going away, He said, but God the Father, I will ask, and God the Father will send to you another counselor. You know Him whether you realize it or not, because He is with you, but on that day He will be in you. And you'll have the Holy Spirit dwelling within you. As a Christian, we do. So, that's the significance of, of one. Jesus makes about five huge statements about the Holy Spirit here in this uh, final speech in John. And this is the first one. He will indwell you, and He will indwell you as a counselor. Counselor. That's the Greek word parakletos. Parakletos in Greek, para means next to. Kaleo or kletos is call. In fact, we get call from it. We just turn the K into a C and the L. Call, C-A-L-L. Kletos. Someone called alongside. It's the Greek word that's used of a lawyer, a trial lawyer. Um, it's the Greek word that's used of a counselor. Like Louis Miori, he would be a parakletos because he's someone who is there to help you. In a sense, he's called to walk beside you and to aid you through what you're going through. Um, so the Holy Spirit, Jesus says, is coming and he's going to dwell within you to walk along with you through your life and assist you in what you have to do. That's the first promise, okay? The second promise found in, in, in John, um, as Jesus gives this speech, is that, that the Holy Spirit will teach the apostles the things they need to know and will remind them of both the words and the deeds of Jesus. This is really good because as you read John 14, 15, 16, you see that the apostles really don't have a clue what Jesus is talking about. They're not understanding it. I mean, they were rather dense in so many ways without the Spirit. Paul will explain to us later in 1 Corinthians, you don't understand spiritual things without the Holy Spirit. And so Jesus is speaking spiritually to them. They don't have a clue what He's talking about. But Jesus in part says, you can put down your pens and papers. You don't need to be taking notes right now because the Holy Spirit that I'm going to send you is going to dwell in you. It will teach you these things. will remind you of my words. You won't have to depend solely upon your memory. It says, he will teach you what you need to know. He will remind you. Does that make sense? So that's the second big statement about the Holy Spirit that Jesus gives. Third big statement about the Holy Spirit. He will testify about Jesus. But the way Jesus says it, the Holy Spirit will come, He will indwell you, He will remind you, He will teach you, and He will, quote, bear witness to me. Just as you do. The Holy Spirit doesn't do it apart from the apostles, but through the apostles and through the church. The Holy Spirit bears witness or testifies or, 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 or affirms who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. That's the Holy Spirit that's doing it. When we speak out to our neighbors or our friends or our enemies about Jesus Christ, 
when we do it with words or when we do it with actions, it's the Holy Spirit that's doing it. It's the Holy Spirit working with us to bear witness to Christ. And it's interesting because this has got real balance here. It's God's Holy Spirit doing it, but He's not doing it alone. We have a part to play as well. Does that make sense? That's the third promise. The fourth promise, when the Holy Spirit comes, Jesus said, He will convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. Then Jesus explains it. He says, of sin, because the world doesn't believe in me. And so not believing in me, the world needs to have conviction about its sin. The, 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 the Holy Spirit has a, a very special ministry that Jesus is saying that is convicting us of when we do wrong. It convicts us of sin. Now there's a difference between convicting people of sin and beating people over the head with guilt. Okay? Convicting people of sin is something that the Holy Spirit does, but just as much as He convicts us of sin, He convicts us of righteousness and He convicts us of judgment. Righteousness because Jesus has gone to the Father, Jesus said, is going to the Father. In other words, yes, I'm convicted of my sin, but I'm equally convicted of righteousness that I have in Jesus Christ who paid the price for my sins and went to the Father. So sin, yes. Do I repent? Yes. Do I grieve it? Yes. But I'm equally convicted that I have righteousness in Jesus Christ who has gone to the Father. That's the difference in my mind between the Holy Spirit's conviction of sin and Satan's abuse of guilt. When you beat yourself up over the head because you so embrace the sin and the guilt, but you never embrace the righteousness we have in Jesus Christ, that's not the Holy Spirit's work. The Holy Spirit doesn't seek to put you in guilt for the rest of your life. The Holy Spirit seeks to put you convicted of sin, but also convicted of, of righteousness and convicted of judgment. And the judgment's not bad judgment. It's that the world stands condemned, but we stand in Jesus Christ. So that's good news for us. That's why this whole gospel thing is called good news. Okay, that's the work of the Holy Spirit. Sin because people don't believe. Righteousness because Jesus goes to the Father. And judgment because Satan in this world stands condemned. And then the final promise that Jesus gives about the coming Holy Spirit is that the Holy Spirit will guide the apostles in truth, telling them what is to come and doing it in such a way that they take the things of God that bring glory to Christ and they reveal them among mankind. The purpose, ultimate purpose of the Holy Spirit is to glorify Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit does not come to glorify the person who has it. The Holy Spirit was never intended to mark uh, uh, Sandy apart as being super spiritual above other people. The Holy Spirit was never meant to come and, and make someone high and mighty compared to the average person. What the Holy Spirit does, the Holy Spirit doesn't come to bring glory 
to anything or anybody except Jesus Christ. Okay? Holy Spirit's not here for a show. Um, I'd love, I would just absolutely, I would give up my legal career if I had the gift of healing. Wouldn't that, she'd give up her legal career too, and she's not even a lawyer. <laughs> I would give it up. If I could say, Edward Fudge, who fills in for me sometimes here, a lot of y'all have grown to, to love and appreciate him. I was eating lunch with him, it's probably been 15, 20 years ago, and we'd met at a restaurant, and he was just so excited, and he's a kind of a little guy in some ways, and he lo looks, how do I say this? Edward has not aged a bit. He looks his age, but he's looked his age for about 20 or 30 years. And so here's this fellow that looks like he's an older guy than he really is about 20 years ago. And he's got his little bow tie, and he looks like a little elf. And he's sitting there over lunch, and he's just he's all red-faced. And I looked at him, I said, you're all red-faced. you have a tough walk over here? And he says, no. And he was in law school at the time, I believe. And he was just living on a skin-tight budget. And I said, why are you so red-faced? He says, well, I just got so excited. I just, I just got so excited, but I couldn't do anything about it. I said, what do you mean? He said, well, walking here to lunch, I passed one of those beggar guys, and he asked me for money. And I said, and that was exciting. He said, well, what was exciting was uh, I realized I didn't have any. And the guy was sitting there, and, and he, he was obviously lame in his leg. And he said, all I could think about saying to him was, Silver and gold have I none, but what I have give I thee. In the name of Jesus Christ, stand up and walk. I said, did you do it? He said, no, nah, it wouldn't have worked. <laughs> he said, but I was this close. I was this close. I would love to have that. You know, have you seen them on TV where they just line up and they walk up and all they got to do is just touch them on the head and go, hey <laughs> I would love to have that. But I want to tell you, the Holy Spirit was never coming to glorify any man except Jesus Christ. And if I ever had the gift of healing, I think the right way to do it may be privately with the elders going to someone's home with some oil to anoint and to pray. Instead of getting on national TV. Saying, line them up, baby. The healer has come to town. I got the Holy Ghost. I just don't think that was there the way, uh, the way we often think it is. So let's summarize these points as we look at Montanism. Holy Spirit will indwell as a counselor. Holy Spirit will teach and remind. Holy Spirit will testify about Jesus. Holy Spirit will convict on sin, righteousness, judgment. Holy Spirit will guide in truth the things to come and glorify Christ. Now, if you are ever bored and you want to do a home study on the Holy Spirit, I've got a suggestion for you. You either write down these five things or you just take those three chapters of John and you write down in your own words the five promises of Jesus. And then turn the page from the last page of John and start with the, the, the book of Acts. And go through and circle every time you see the Holy Spirit mentioned in Acts, in Romans, in 1st and 2nd Corinthians, all the way through Galatians and Ephesians. You can sing the song as you do it, okay? 
Go all the way through to the book of Revelation. And every time you circle the Holy Spirit, look at your list of five things Jesus said the Holy Spirit would be doing. And it's almost like a third grader's test. You can draw a line straight from one, sometimes two of them, over to the verse. Because it is so clear that's what the Holy Spirit did. I mean, it will convict you of the integrity of Scripture. It will convict you of the integrity of the Holy Spirit. And it will give you great understanding that this is what God is about in the Holy Spirit. Because you will see the Holy Spirit indwelling the believers. You will see in Acts, as the Spirit is poured out, how people's lives totally change. You'll see with Cornelius that he receives the Holy Spirit. And so a, a, a non-Jew, not asked to convert to Judaism, and Peter says, he's got the promised Holy Spirit. Who's going to deny him baptism? You will see it teach and remind the apostles as all of a sudden Peter, who didn't understand, squat about the Lord. It, he didn't. All of a sudden in Acts chapter 2, it's like the light switch is turned on. And he's standing up there preaching, using Joel, using the Old Testament, explaining that Jesus Christ is the Son of God who has died for our sins and been resurrected and that in Him we have eternal life. I mean, he's teaching, he's reminding because the Holy Spirit is at work in him. And you'll see it over and over and over and over. Point three, you'll see the Holy Spirit come upon people and testify about Jesus. Testify about Jesus. Convicting people of sin, righteousness, and judgment. And not always convicting them in a way where the people respond positively. Sometimes the conviction is a, is a negative. But the conviction is there. Because the Holy Spirit is sharper than any two-edged sword. And it will pierce to the division. Just as the Word of God is because it's a Word that proceeds from the Spirit. You will see this, you'll see on uh, the Ethiopian eunuch convicted when the Spirit comes on him of his sin and righteousness and who, of who Jesus is. And you'll see, I, you can follow it through. You will see the Holy Spirit guide the church in truth. Sometimes it guides them miraculously. Sometimes it doesn't. In Acts chapter 15, it guided the church in truth by the church all coming together, scratching their heads saying, WWJD. What would Jesus do? Well, and they fuss and they fight. But the Spirit works and the church grows and the church grows and the church grows as people are brought to a saving knowledge of Jesus. Now, we read that in the Bible. And if you start reading your apostolic fathers and you read these other writings, you'll see the Spirit continuing to work in the church. The miracles aren't huge, but the miracles are spoken of. But something happens. Around 150 A.D., over in an area called Phrygia, it's in the middle of Turkey. We don't know exactly where this town is, so I grabbed a picture of some ruins from Hierapolis because it was near there. There's this pagan priest named Montanus. Montanus. That's where we get the word Montanism from. And this pagan priest converts to Christianity. And he doesn't do it alone. He's got two ladies who convert with him. Prisca, Priscilla, but she was called Prisca, and Maximilla. 
And so these three convert. And they convert to Christianity in a different way. That, uh, no, let me say it this way. Their conversion is one where they maintain a great deal of um, personal... Uh, uh, they, they don't just come into the fold. They stay independent somewhat. In fact, they set up their own community, a little commune, because they thought the Acts community, I suspect, was one in the early church that lived in a, a socialistic fellowship where they sold everything and held everything in common. So a commune is set up in uh, Papuza. And Papuza is a town, we don't know where it is today either, though we suspect it's in this area. Montanus isn't fond of his local church. He's not fond of his local bishop. Montanus believes that the church is spiritually dead. And he says as much. He says that the church it no longer embraces the Holy Spirit. That the Holy Spirit is no longer breathing fire in the church's belly, or is it, nor is it breathing the signs and wonders it did in the New Testament. And so Montanus says, the church, as I see it, is spiritually dead. Why is it dead? He says, because the church relies too much on Scripture and the bishops. The church is spiritually dead because the church goes and what the church does is it learns from Scripture, Sunday school, and it listens to a sermon. The church is spiritually dead because the church is no longer going to the Holy Spirit as its teacher. The church has put God in a box. He says God is in a box because God is surrounded and encased by the preacher, the bishop, and by the scriptures. And heaven forbid we put God in a box. So he says, I'm going to preach it and I'm going to preach it right. I'm the mouthpiece of the Holy Spirit. And I'm going to declare the things to the church. And those that follow me, he says, those that follow me are spiritual. Pneumatikos in the Greek. From pneuma, which is breath or spirit. As opposed to those who are psuche in the Greek, soulish. You remember, you've, some people are big on, there are three parts of man, spirit, soul, and body because there are some references that, that talk about spirit, and talk about soul and body, and one place Paul puts the three terms together. And if you're into that thing, um, uh, then you know, the spiritual is where God's spirit dwells, and the body is just the physical, and then the soul's kind of uh, this part of you that's kind of both, sort of. I'm not really into that thing, so I don't say it well, okay? But, you know, he takes those words for spiritual and those words for soulish, and he labels people with them. You want to go to church and you want to just follow scripture and you want to just listen to the bishop? That's fine if you want to be a soulish Christian. But if you want to be spiritual, then you move beyond that. You embrace the Holy Spirit. Now he didn't call this movement Montanism. That was coined a couple hundred years later. He called it, we believe, the new prophecy movement in the church. There's a new prophecy. There's a new revelation out in the church. And he himself was uh, uh, the key teacher of it. 
He says, I've had it revealed to me Christ is coming again any day now. Or any year now. And he would go to the signs. Did you know they were having wars? They were having famines? He had all the signs. We're going to see as we go through the church history. You know, if you ask people today, a lot of people will say, the signs are here, I think we're in the last days. And we may very well be because the signs are here. But they've been here for about 1,900 years now. And just about every church generation has said, the signs are here and it could be any day now. And every generation's been right. The signs are here and it could be any day now. But we don't know if it's going to be this day or this soon. But he did. He had a word from the Lord. And the second coming would be any time now. And if you'd questioned him, he would say, I'd be quick to tell you, I am on the same level as the apostles themselves. Don't go challenging me with Scripture because the Holy Spirit that spoke to them that caused them to write the Scripture is the same Holy Spirit that speaks to me. So I'm on level with the apostles. And he comes out with his new prophecy. Now one of his critics said it's actually not the church of the new prophecy, it's the church of the false prophecy. That's one of the early write-ups on him. But Montanus would say... I am the mouthpiece of the Holy Spirit. And he would get into a frenetic ecstasy where he would lose control. And, and it's as if his body was no longer his. And the words that he would speak, he would speak as if he were God himself talking. One of the things he said, Behold, the man... And he's talking about Montanus. So if, 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 if I were to imitate him, I would, I would be saying it like this. Behold... Well, first I'd have to do like some crazy stuff and roll around a little bit. Then I would say, in some fit of ecstasy, Behold, Mark is like a guitar. They said liar, but I'm a lawyer, and liar just, I don't like that. <laughs> I have to fight that enough, and I'm afraid someone will get the CD and say, See, he said he was a liar. Um, Mark is like a guitar. And I strike the strings like a guitar pick. I am the Lord God, born among men. I am neither an angel nor priest. I am God the Father, come to you. I mean, he's got a congregation out there, and he's standing up there saying this stuff. I mean, if you believe it, you better listen to what he says. So when he tells you to go get your marriage annulled because you're not supposed to be married, they went and did it. When he tells you you're supposed to fast three days a week, they did it. Because this guy is, is uh, not given opinions. He's given the word of the Lord in his mind. Now, he didn't do it alone. He taught others to do it. I get Jim up here and say, Jim or Lewis, I'm going to teach you to prophesy. Now, it's not really me teaching you, it's the Holy Spirit. So all you got to do is just say it. He's put the ideas in your mind. He's put the words in your throat. Open up your mouth and let it out. Now, lest you think this is bizarre, this type of stuff does go on today. I have a friend. I haven't seen her in 20 years probably. But I had a friend named Allison who was really getting into this kind of stuff. And she was convinced this was right. And so when we were pregnant with Will, our oldest child, three months pregnant, 
Allison came up to us. Blessed be the fruit of your womb. I declare this is a daughter. I'm sitting there thinking, well, you know, under the Old Testament, if she's wrong, I'm supposed to stone her for being a false prophet. But <laughs> by the same token, she's got a 50-50 shot of being right. If she's right, do I give her credit? I just didn't say anything. I just waited. But when Will was born, and it's not short for Wilhelmina, um, I decided, you know, just saying, and I, so I went to her, I said, well, you know, what do you, she says, well, I'm, I'm, it's trial and error. I'm trying to learn to listen to the Spirit, and, you know, I must have mistapped it that day. I don't see that. Um, but another unique thing is he would teach other people to do it. Now, he had these two women, Prisca and Maximilla, and they would prophesy too. In fact, one of them said, in the form of a woman, Christ came to me and implanted wisdom within me. Actually, I left out something. In the form of a woman in a shiny garment, Christ came to me and implanted wisdom within me and revealed to me that this place, she's talking about Papuza, is holy. And it is here that the heavenly Jerusalem will come down. She went on to say, shortly after I die, it's happening. And a millennium kingdom will be set up by Jesus Christ and Jerusalem's getting transferred from where it is over here to Papuza. <clears throat> she missed it. Montanism caused the first split in the church, probably. Scholars, some scholars at least believe that it did. Because the church had to stand up for the authority of Scripture. And the church had to stand up for apostolic authority and the power of, of, uh, uh, of the church itself. And so uh, in a lot of communities you would go to in Asia Minor, there would be two churches at this point in time. There would be the Montanistic church, and there would be the, the, what later becomes called the Apostolic or the Orthodox church. This is still at a point in time where the leaders of the church, they're not always the people appointed by the apostles but they're still just second generation. It's very easy for them to say, you know, we can talk about when we get a new pastor, we'll still be able to talk about the pastor we had before, Damon Shook, because he'll still be fresh in our memory. And we'll be able to recognize our new pastor as one that the church has selected, seeing it as God's will for this church, recognizing that this is the same church that Damon had. You know, it's not all of a sudden a brand new church just because we have a new pastor. You follow? So that's how close the church is still to the apostles. And they're able to say, you know, this guy is different. This is not apostolic Christianity. Now, by 180 AD, uh, Montanus is dead, Prisca's dead, Maximilla's dead. So Montanism goes what I call second generation. And second generation kind of backs off a little bit, it looks like. Not a lot, but a little bit. Uh, Montanism is also spread. Originally, Phrygia is somewhere here in central Turkey. But uh, what we've got at this point in time is it goes from central Turkey. Um, we know Montanism is spread to Rome, and we know it's spread to Carthage, which is North Africa, major town. Second generation Montanism has also brought some changes that the uh, Montanists have apart from the real church. The Montanists have the first paid clergy. 
And the church itself got real upset that Montanism had paid clergy because the church thought that money ought to be going to the poor. Later on, the church embraces that, recognizing that Paul embraced it way back in the New Testament when he said that, you know, you, you don't deny the ox its feed when it's treading out the grain. Not only that, but Montanism has a different church structure. They had new offices. The bishop got bumped down to like third place. And above him uh, uh, were the koinonos. And above the koinonos was the patriarch, which was like the head honcho. Um, the role of women was different in the Montanistic church. Women had equal roles to men in all aspects, from top to bottom. Um, now, enter into the picture Tertullian. I like Tertullian. Okay, so maybe I can shade this a little bit to help him out. Uh, Tertullian was, uh, if you went back to that map in your brain, Carthage, North Africa. Tertullian was um, from there incredibly well-educated, not raised as a Christian. Um, uh, interesting point, interesting point here that we need to, to digress for a minute. A lot of times you've heard the expression of a wasp, white Anglo-Saxon Protestant, right? W-A-S-P, okay? Heaven forbid we ever think that's the true heritage that we have as Christians, some of the best thought leaders and the best theologians in the early church, and by early church I'm talking the first 400, 500 years, were black theologians out of Africa. Some of the smartest, sharpest, best written were far from being white Anglo-Saxon Protestants. Tertullian is one of them. I like this guy. You know why? He was a trial lawyer, baby. <laughs> Now, I'll have to admit, he was a, for a long time a pagan trial lawyer who was a drunken sot by his own admission that adulterated with his, around on his wife and had a few other vices that helped him understand the need for forgiveness and grace. But um, he was a trial lawyer nonetheless. He used to go to Rome and argue cases in Rome. We've got, he was a great trial lawyer. We've got still some of his, totally apart from his Christian writings, very prolific writer, um, we've got some pagan references to some of his cases and his arguments and his work because he was an incredible trial lawyer in his day. And because he was an incredible trial lawyer and because we've got two extra minutes, I'm just going to throw out for you some of the things he said. This guy had wrote wonderfully well in sentences. His paragraphs got a little wordy. But his, he, could, he could turn a phrase, okay? He could turn a phrase. How about this? You remember we talked about Marcion last week, the, the pagan that uh, Polycarp called the firstborn of, or secondborn of Satan? Okay? This is what Tertullian said of Marcion. He said, he's a rat from Pontus who gnaws away at the Gospels. That's pretty good, isn't it? How about this? Talking about martyrdom and how martyrdom was affecting the church. He said, the blood of Christians is the seed of the church. It's from these deaths and this blood that the church is growing. It doesn't end the church, it grows the church. Brilliant statement. Tacitus, who was a Roman historian that uh, Tertullian didn't seem to like much, called him a first-class chatterbox and a liar. <laughs> That's pretty good. He's a first. Um, how about faith? He says this about faith. He says, faith 
is patience with its lamp lit. In other words, faith is we know the sun's going to rise and we'll be patient and we'll let the sun rise. But meanwhile, we're lighting our lamp. <laughs> Think about it. That's a pretty good statement. I'm not sure what it means, but it's... it's <laughs> sounds really deep. Um, so we have Tertullian, a trial lawyer. He's an early apologist. And we're going to look at Tertullian in some greater detail because he truly is probably one of the three top theologians the church produced in its first 200 years after the New Testament. He's an incredible thinker. He's not only an early apologist, he's the first person to coin the phrase Trinity. Okay? Now, the church doesn't embrace this for another 100 to 150 years because ultimately the church writes Tertullian off as a heretic because later in life Tertullian becomes a Montanist. All right? But in his early going, he's writing this stuff right and left for the church, and he writes about the Trinity. In fact, if we, if we were to study our Catholic saints, Tertullian is not a saint, most likely because he became a Montanist. That's why the Catholic Church has said, hey, okay, he's the first to say the Trinity. His, his faith in God and his faith in Jesus is orthodox. God the Father, Jesus his Son, died on the cross to save us from our sins, in our faith in Him, we go to heaven. Um, but he also, being a lawyer, knew people were going to be cynical. So, for example, he had a woman in his church that had the Holy Spirit's gifts that were healing, leading people to healing, he said. And he would give specific examples of what this woman was saying and how it was right and just dead on. And he'd say, I know everybody's going to be cynical about this. That's why I'm writing it so precisely. You come check it out. And at the part of, of the church where he is in Carthage, he never really gets kicked out formally. In fact, by the time of Augustine in 400 A.D., the, the Montanistic church is not called Montanism there, it's called Tertullianism, and it's brought back within the accepted folds of, of uh, what at that point is the Catholic church. So um, he's an interesting guy, and we'll study him more. But it just tells you a lot of movements may start out totally off and totally wacko, and God's got a way of ministering even within that and bringing people back and using it to work good. It's an amazing thing God does in history. How does the church react? This is our last slide before points for home, so hang in there. We're almost done. On the positive side, church had positive reaction and negative. On the positive side, it forced the church to start focusing on Scripture. What really is Scripture? What counts as Scripture? What should we address and accept as being authoritative, God-breathed words that come from the Spirit of God itself and are different than what ordinary men just say? It caused the church to focus on apostolic teaching. Because the church reasoned, we know the apostles were real. They had firsthand experiences with Jesus. Jesus delivered himself to them, his words to them, and trusted them with his church. Let's focus on what is genuinely apostolic as opposed to what's being made up afterwards. And part of that means let's make sure everybody can truly trace back what's accurate. Don't let someone who we don't know his history come in and say, I have word from, you know, I, the apostles taught my mentor and blah, blah, blah. If they did, let's name the mentor and let's chase it back. Let's make sure that we have genuine faith and genuine touch points to the apostles that are reliable. Polycarp, 
Or better yet, Irenaeus is alive. Irenaeus can say, I learned from Polycarp. And Polycarp, we know from his writings, learned from John the Apostle. Okay. Let's make sure we've got these touchstones for validity. Now the negative is, the church got kind of afraid of the charismatic gifts. And it reached a point where the church was very suspicious of anybody who exercised them, thinking they might be a montanist. And so it kind of started squelching. And here's where for the first time we see the charismatic work within the church starting to be diminished and the church itself starting to pull back from it. By the same token, there was a suspicion of the book of Revelation because Revelation was written by John at the time John's over there in Turkey. And there were a lot of people in the other parts of the empire who wondered if John really wrote that book or maybe that's something the Montanists did and just claimed to be John. Because it's kind of smacks of them, you know, he's coming any day now and, and Jesus says, I'm coming soon, amen, come Lord Jesus. And you know, just kind of smacks of maybe this is some Montanistic stuff. So the church, it casts suspicions on Revelation that would hang around for a hundred years or so before the church got its head together and realized the, the, the validity of it. So where does this leave us? It leaves us with this for your points for home. Pray for the Holy Spirit to work in your life, in the lives of your daughters and your sons and your, your family and your friends and your enemies because the Holy Spirit will indwell as a counselor when you come to faith in Jesus. Teach and remind you the things you need to know to make it through your day and your week. Testify about Jesus Christ and what it does in you and what you do for others. Convict you not just of sin, which is going to give you guilt, but also of righteousness and judgment, which removes the guilt and gives you great freedom and an ability to praise God for His love and provision for you in spite of all the gunk you do. And guide you in truth, things to come, and glorify Christ. Would you pray with me? Our Lord God, Father, we pray, I pray right now that your Holy Spirit will minister to every person in here, convicting them and bringing them to their knees before your cross to embrace the finished work of Jesus Christ and glorify you and glorify Christ for what he has done to take us as a people and bring us into your presence, pure and undefiled, washed by his blood. Thank you, Lord, for that work in all the ways you do it. May we never shut you out, but may we always look for your spirit to glorify Christ in what it does. In Jesus we pray, amen.